Hey crew, before we get started today, I just wanted to say welcome back to Enterprising Individuals. The show has been somewhat dormant for a little bit, mostly because of technical problems, which I've outlined, I believe, on Twitter and other social media. Uh, but long story short, uh, those are pretty much solved by now. So I hope to be up to regular production in the weeks going forward. Also dealing with a couple personal things in my life right now. Uh, moving uh, house and moving the studio. So getting time to record and getting uh, a right condition and the right place to record has been kind of difficult. So hopefully going forward, there will be no interruption in our schedule, but there could be, and I'll let you know if that's possible, and hopefully it won't last too long. But I'd encourage you in the meantime to check out our social media if you haven't already. You can find us at E-I-S-T-P-O-D on Facebook and Twitter, and also Instagram as well. Uh, we're going to be going to a couple cons this year, uh, coming up actually at the beginning of July. We're doing Convergence in the Twin Cities, which is one we do every year. And every year we do a live show there. We're doing one this year. I'm pretty excited about it. We're talking about Star Trek 2009. Yes, the much maligned or much loved, depending on who you are, beginning of the Kelvinverse movies uh, in the Star Trek cinematic realm. So we're going to be talking about that and kind of, um, I don't know, kind of, convi let's say, convincing Captain Caliban to like 2009. Maybe my heart is opening up a little bit. Uh, that show will be available in audio form on our Patreon. It'll be available on our social media in video form as well. And if you want to check that out, go to our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash E-I-S-T-P-O-D. And I said this on social media, but I want to say it on the show too. Thank you so much to our contributors, our crew members on our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash E-I-S-T-P-O-D. Uh, it's really financial contributions like that and also contributions uh, for our Patreon for our parent network, Just Enough Trope, uh, at patreon.com forward slash Just Enough Trope that allowed us to almost immediately replace uh, our damaged equipment. And we're actually looking forward this year, um, later in the summer, later in the year, to improving some of our audio equipment and some of our engineering equipment and getting new uh, video content up uh, because of that on YouTube and other places. So it's those kind of contributions that grow the show and just make it better. And I'm just, I'm proud to be your captain. And thank you so much for your contributions. They really do help. So if you want to be a member of the show, you can go to patreon.com forward slash E-I-S-T-P-O-D. Uh, great show today. Talked with John Edward Betancourt of nerdsthatgeek.com, a really fascinating and fun uh, nerd site. Uh, we talk about a great classic episode of TNG that refers to the classic episodes of TOS. And John is a great guy. He knows a lot about this sort of stuff. And I really encourage you to check out his site, Nerds That Geek. It's not your typical you know, nerd site where you're just, you know, rewriting press releases from studios or just going uh, five ways that Superman should wear the underwear on the outside of his pants and four ways that he shouldn't. Uh, it's a lot of like insightful writings and some essay pieces, some original fiction, too, uh, about that kind of nerd sort of pop culture world that so many of us, myself included, are really, really into. So check that out. Uh, enjoy the show. And with that, let's get underway. It's worked so far, but we're not out yet. I want to know what you're thinking. There are some things you can't hide. I want to know what you're feeling. Tell me what's on your mind.
Daily Frequencies Open, and welcome to Enterprising Individuals, the Star Trek discussion podcast that boldly goes into excruciating detail about the series, characters, and stories of the Star Trek universe. I'm your host, Aaron Coker, a.k.a. Caliban, and it's exciting to think that we may one day meet aliens who have a Dyson sphere. Who knows how clean their floors will be? I'm joined on this episode by John Betancourt. John is an author and screenwriter, and he's the editor-in-chief for NerdsThatGeek.com, a website that covers sci-fi and pop culture media and topics. John, welcome to the show. Uh, thank you so much. It is an absolute pleasure to be here. We're talking Star Trek, so there is a... Uh... There's nothing better on, a, on an afternoon for that, is there? I, I can't disagree with that. Permission to come aboard granted. Today we'll be talking about Relics, the fourth episode of the sixth season of Star Trek The Next Generation. With Star Trek Discovery currently in its second season, the Star Trek franchise is going back to its roots as the series makes use of TOS-era characters and settings. However, when Star Trek The Next Generation debuted in 1987, the new series wanted as little as possible to do with the original series in an attempt to distance themselves from old Trek. That attitude, though, softened over time, thanks in part to several high-profile guest appearances by TOS stars on TNG, leading to a tighter integration between the various series in the Trek universe and a strengthening of coherence between the various eras of Trek, but we'll talk about that a little later in the show. First, John, I always ask new guests to the show about their backstory. How did you become a Star Trek fan? Um, you know, mine is a generational story. Uh, my father is a, a nerd as big as I am, um, <laughs> and he, uh, he introduced me to the original series when I was growing up, so I saw all the movies, um, and Next Generation is a series that is very near and dear to my heart because of the fact that it was the one that I grew up with. Um, when 87 rolled around, I saw the promos, and I got all kinds of excited for it. Oh, yeah. And uh, I was hooked. And I've every TV series since I've made sure to watch, every movie I've made sure to be in. Um, I mean, it's it really is, the uh, to me, one of the quintessential powerful science fiction franchises out there. Not that I don't enjoy other ones, but if there's one that I always come home to and has the most meaning to me, it's, it's Star Trek. Oh, it absolutely. really does uh, embody the best of us um, and what we could be. And I, I really, really appreciate that. Yeah, I, I have to wonder, and I don't uh, want to sound like an old fogey here, because uh, I, I don't think I am one quite yet, but uh, as somebody who is a sort of a nerd and geek expert yourself, I wonder if like fandom these days, thanks to uh, interactive media and video games, uh, is increasingly different than it was in the past. You know, if I think of a nerd in the uh, in the fifties, for instance, it's somebody who reads probably a lot of science fiction, science fiction magazines, amazing stories. Maybe uh, paints models, you know, assembles models, or like or like there's train nerds too, I suppose. Oh yeah, uh, aren't oh. there? So, oh, but but nowadays, I wonder if that is not quite as prevalent as it is because kids are you know, hopefully doing things on the, on the computer that's going to lead to some kind of career for them. I don't know what, uh, maybe, maybe the train guys went into a uh, locomotion. I don't know. Yeah, it's funny. It's funny you mentioned trains. Cause that was something that was also big when I was growing up. And, yeah. uh, my, my nephew, um, who is, who's turning six this year is, uh, is a huge train nerd and he's got his hands on that stuff left and right. Okay. Um, and, and thanks to his father who also, you know, watched Star Trek alongside him cause he's my brother. Um, <laughs> he's also getting into science fiction. In fact, he's got his, his first lightsaber a couple of years ago. So, okay, sure. <laughs> um, I, I think, I think it's evolving. I think it's still there. We've been very blessed over at NTG to do, um, a lot of conventions through the years. And one that we get to do every year is Denver pop culture con, uh, oh. formerly Denver comic con. Um, and I noticed that you see, and I think it's what I like about that convention the most is how family friendly it is. Cause you see a lot of families and you'll see dads, you know, who are, you know, I, I, I don't think I'm an old fogey either, but I'm definitely, um, not quite the spring chicken I used to be, but <laughs> I do see dads uh, and, and moms with their sons um, and their daughters, and, and, and they are now spreading that particular wonder across. So they're, the kids are dressed up in cosplay. Yeah. They're wearing Starfleet uniforms. And I think, I think it is that 
expression, and it might even be helping because now it's so widely accessible. If you want to see Star Trek now, you can stream it on so many platforms. So oh, yeah. I'm hoping that it is just evolving and becoming easier to access because I'm with you. I used to do the AMT Ertl kits back in the day, and yeah, yeah, and uh, <laughs> those were harder to get hold of then than they seem to be now. <laughs> yeah, I uh, I never did as many of those as I probably should have because I just felt Same. like I just didn't. You know, I know it's supposed to be for fun, but the, my exacting sort of nature is like if that little sticker is crooked, you know, if the NCC 1701 is not perfectly yes. on there. I'm like, oh, screw this. Yeah, I actually uh, my dream project was to properly paint and build one. And I had a 1701E that was so close. Ooh. And my mother threw out the bottom decals. And that, oh, no. was, uh, <laughs> that was a very sad day. It was a very I just I quit. I'm done with you for now. Um, <laughs> and then I went and bought the Diamond Select Enterprise E. So that says what it needs okay. to say about yeah. where I'm at these days. <laughs> sure. Yeah. <laughs> Mother's the nemesis of nerds everywhere. Uh, uh, it can't be. <laughs> I've I'm, I'm noticed that uh, a lot of conventions have have made the step of changing their name from something something Comic Con to something something uh, Fan Fest or something something uh, Pop Culture Con. Do you think that that is just an acknowledgement of the sort of growing number uh, and integration of fandoms, or is it just trying to escape uh, possibly getting sued by whoever owns the name Comic Con? Uh, you know, a little from uh, the port nacelle, a little from the starboard nacelle. <laughs> okay. um, I, I think it is a little bit of both. I think. I think seeing things that are more inclusive, they'll have to be part of it because it really is. It's amazing to see having watched conventions, especially in Denver, because that's where that's where I'm located. And in the state of Colorado, there are uh, there are so many conventions and it's it's both a blessing and a curse because you got to pick and choose. But at the same yeah. time, having seen these little ones grow, um, you know, having seen the smaller sci fi conventions that just focused on that now become what DPCC is, this massive conglomerate of everything. I mean, you know, they have you know such a wide, diverse piece. I mean, you've got, you know. We've seen, you know, we've seen Shatner in Denver, but we've also seen, you know, folks from Game of Thrones out here. It's, mm-hmm. I think it's both. Um, I mean, nobody wants to pay the fines and the freight that you got to pay to the uh, Comic Con these days. But at the same token, mm-hmm. you, you have to be more inclusive as a con. Um, you have to have better fan base, and you have to have uh, everything under the sun. Who, who is it they want to celebrate? Who is it they want to see? And, and that's really part of that show now. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm always I'm a little jealous of the fandom of something like Supernatural, where you know Star Trek originally runs for three seasons and then slowly builds up to have a huge <laughs> uh, fan following. And Supernatural is yeah. going on like 14, 15 seasons. They've got yearly conventions that are literally just oh, you know, yeah. for Supernatural. And so these these kids they don't know how good they have it. It's true. I mean, you're gonna get you're gonna get Supernatural, the next generation, on the actual show at this rate. Yeah, right. Um, it's <laughs> yes. in its own right. Their, their kids are gonna grow up and become become these hunters. So that should be intriguing to say the least. Yes, right. Uh, it's uh, it's a different world now. The, the demand the demand to keep these shows on the air is like never before, and it's uh, it's it's neat and it's it's a blessing for those that get it now versus us who had to uh, you know, sit down and and, and you know, curl up in a ball when you know, Next Generation or Deep Space Nine or Voyager or Enterprise goes off the air. Yeah. Well, this is turning into the old fogey show, so we should move on. <laughs> uh, how did Nerds at Geek start? Um, you know, we uh, we were born out of just the, the passion aspect of it. For us, it really is a matter of we like the ability to sit there on the web and, and have the conversations that we have, kind of like what we're having now, just that, you know, things that we love about fandoms, things that we love about shows. Yeah. And, and we try very hard, not always successfully, but we try very hard to, to – do what our slogan is, and that's celebrate the stories you love. Because it's very easy to go on and talk about how much you hate Captain America and how much you think it sucks or this <laughs> that. Um, but it's very hard to praise any any part of that and really celebrate what the story is about and celebrate what it's trying to do. Yeah. Um, and it's intriguing to try to, to to keep that in this climate because there are times where you know we we take flack for for praising a show like The Orville, which you know really uh, 
takes its time to, to celebrate the best parts of Star Trek and Star Trek The Next Generation. Um, sure. And I, I remember, you know, I've seen comments where it's like, oh, you guys are just being, you know, being a bunch of goose, you know, and, and enjoying something like that. But that's the point. We, we like that part of Star Trek. We like that part of the show. Um, but that's really what, what the genesis was of that. And for us, it's, it's just grown out to a very large, um, uh, very large group of about seven, eight writers um, who, you know, who I kind of rotate through. I let folks, you know, kind of explore their own pieces. But uh more or less, you know, that, 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 that core seven of us really work hard on um, just celebrating the best parts and really talking about what we love. And that's, that's, that's pop culture. Yeah. And you have a lot of varied content on the site. Um, you're doing a, um, a series right now uh, that's called Breaking the Fourth Wall, where you visit uh, movie locations. Uh, and I thought that that was really yep. interesting. Uh, you visited uh, like the Stanley Hotel uh, from The Shining. It's handy when it's in your backyard. Oh, yeah, I suppose. Yeah, there you go. Uh, any uh, any plans to visit any other further sites? Um, you know, right now I'm overdue for a trip to the Stanley. It's a it's a great energizing place to be, um, to say the least. And, and I, I haven't had a chance to go up there in a while. But um, I, I think that's for sure. My next stop is, is to get back up there because it's just it's been too long. And yeah. I got to see how big the hedge maze they planted is growing now. Oh, wow. Um, <laughs> yeah, they actually went through and did that. Um, and, and just the environment there is just very, very, it's just very cool just to be there and know that King was there. He yeah. popped in there from time to time. I know one of my other, uh, fellow writers, uh, Scott Edwards, um, who does a lot of our, a lot of our horror stuff and a lot of our, our B movie features. He, uh, he was up there staying there a couple of years ago and he shot me a weird question over text saying, you know, uh, where, uh, what, why is it Stephen King doesn't he drink anymore? And I was like, well, he, he quit it years ago. He's like, oh, well, that's why he's over here having a tonic and lime. I'm like, I'm sorry, he's there. But yeah, it's just two seats down. Um, and ironically, I was going to go up there and, and, and have dinner with him that night, but I didn't want to fight the traffic, and I regret it immensely because yeah. I could have, you know, had dinner two feet back from Stephen King. But hey, oh, yeah. um, but outside of that, I don't know. You know, there's, um, I'd say there's anything that I probably want to visit very badly in the next year, and it, it couldn't work out better for this particular podcast. Um, I'm looking to do. Um, uh, the Ticonderoga Museum tour that uh, James oh, yeah. Colley has up there in, in right. New York with his old uh, uh, his old Phase Two slash New Voyages uh, uh, s- uh, sets there, and those look amazing. And I know he's getting some massive names up there. I know Anson Mount was up there a few weeks yeah. ago. Yeah. I think Shatner's coming this summer again. So I think that would be a cool thing to see because that's about as close to a, a Starfleet replica you're going to get for the sets. Um, uh, yeah. That, so that's sure. probably probably the closest one. But past that, nothing that I really have I'd say is planned for this year. But uh, it doesn't. You never know. I'll put it that way, because uh, if, 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 if the uh, the mood strikes and there's a chance to go, go. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, there's always that weird disconnect when there's something that you've seen on screen in a 2D image and then suddenly you're standing in front of or inside of it that sort of yes. clicks into oh, place yes. for you. Mm-hmm. I know that um, I live in the Twin Cities and they shot um, Mall Rats, the Kevin Smith movie, oh, at yeah. a mall nearby right. here yeah and of course you know we were all into kevin smith and uh and his movies back then and it, the funny thing is is that we used to go to that mall all the time but we knew that when we saw the movie that most of the budget <laughs> went into creating stores for that mall that mall was not doing very well and it was it would have been a good place to shoot something like uh dawn of the dead because there was just like nobody there uh and they had to put like stores in and like create booths and things like that for the characters to stand oh, wow. outside of That's a yeah lot of work. So yeah, it's doing better now as a mall, but uh, okay. yeah, it was uh, it was probably a good place. They probably got it for very cheap, but they had to do a lot of uh, a lot of background work. I'm sure they did, absolutely. Um, superhero movies are all the rage, of course, at the box office right now. Uh, how far do you see this going? Just in your general opinion, as somebody who writes about pop culture, you know, I honestly don't know because it's in a weird place right now, especially with the um, the announcement that came yesterday with the Punisher going off the air and uh, yeah, and Jessica Jones too, and and it's it's 
it's one of those things where you're beyond excited to have it because this is what, you know, I, I, I grew up in the eighties, you know, and, and, you know, Superman four is not a good superhero movie as much as I have nostalgia factor for it, calling it like it is. It's yeah. a low budget. It, it's tough. Um, but that's what it was in the eighties and nineties was these, you know, well, we'll give it so much money, but now, you know, you can't, you, you can't spare a dime when it comes to these movies. But, um, I think, I think unfortunately, like everything is cyclic. It's just a matter of time before it, the bubble of it bursts where people want something different. Because right now, you know, um, there's there's nothing uh, there's nothing else being produced. It's 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 the big budget. It's the superhero stuff. Yeah. Uh, the Super Troopers two story about how they couldn't get funding because it wasn't a superhero movie is a is a great <laughs> right. story in its own right. Um, yeah. So I think it's a matter of time before it, the bubble bursts, and I think it's probably going to move more to TV, um, just because you can tell. More intimate stories are like season two of The Punisher. I'm in the middle of right now, and I am just blown away by the stuff they're doing, which is a shame to hear that cancellation announcement when they're doing such great stuff with that particular story. Yeah. Um, and, and you see it. I mean, Star Trek's a great example of that. I mean, it was it was you know the hottest thing in the '90s. You know, you sure. had next gen, you had Voyager and Deep Space Nine, and then people kind of tired out of it with Enterprise, and it just kind of it's been kind of wandering the darkness until Discovery came back, and even then that's taking some serious flack, which. Uh, it's unfortunate because I think every Star Trek show has proven that they need about three years to get to get where they need to go. Yeah. Um, so to expect Discovery to be perfect out of the gate is is a little bit too much for me. But you know, yeah. it's entitled to their opinion. If, if you don't like it, that that's cool. I understand. Plus, the movies have stalled, and it, you know, Star Trek has yeah. oh yes. uh, has its resurgence on TV right now. So yeah, and that's interesting too. And that right to see where the movie's kind of in a holding pattern. Um, I mean, I hope. I think they were moving to some cool stuff there. Um, I, I like Chris Pine as Captain Kirk. I like Zach Quinto as a as yeah. Spock. I think they did a great casting job. Sure. Uh, Carl Urban's a dead ringer for Dick Ford. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but so we'll see. But I mean, it's it, everything's cyclic like that. It's just a matter of time. So enjoy it for now, and we'll see where it goes. I think I think the instant Marvel decides they want to taper off some of their some of their storytelling because. I mean, past Infinity War and, and whatever and, and Endgame, I, that's kind of the, the apex of what you guys are doing. So I don't know what they're gonna what they're gonna do in the next phase. Yeah, yeah well, they're certainly doing something right this time around because I'm sure uh, somewhat older viewers, listeners will remember uh, the last time they tried to do this kind of thing, and they were turning all those Golden Age characters into superheroes. Mm-hmm. I don't know if it was yes. the fault of Dick Tracy, but you had like the Phantom and the Shadow. Oh yeah, uh, yeah. you had a derivative <laughs> character like the Rocketeer, and all these movies that just weren't quite making it, and yeah. it kind of shut down the superhero boom at least at that time. Yeah, that's very true. And it was it's just it was like nobody could quite get it right. And it seems like Marvel's the only one to finally find the right form because I mean even DC's had, you know, it's it's woeful issues uh, on a regular basis, which is unfortunate. But um you know, and then there's potential there too. I feel like uh DC wasted Henry Cavill as Superman. Hmm. Uh he he gave the best earnest performance in a long time and and I, I don't know what they're doing with the character at this point. It just seems like, well, here's one movie and here's a bunch of other stuff and that's uh that's a shame because you could do something you could really reinvent Superman for the twenty first century if you did it right. And mm. I don't I don't I think Warner is more concerned with just getting getting it out and not worrying about the quality of the content right now. Yeah, which is which is too bad. But yeah. uh, I guess he's still Cavill's still in Affleck's out at this point. So it looks like at least we'll see a new spin on Batman hopefully coming up. Yeah, that's true, too. And, and I really hope they do something good with Cavill. I, I, I know he discussed the exit, so it's good to hear that he's going to stay. But yeah. uh, they need to do so. They need to do right by him. I mean, that guy literally is the. I got to give him credit for the physical embodiment of Superman. Which, <laughs> yeah. Wow. <laughs> He's thick. Yeah. <laughs> yep. I'm sure. It puts the, uh, puts the way guys like me to shame. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, enough said about that, the better. Uh, yes, exactly. Why did you choose this specific episode, Relics, to discuss today? You know, it, it's exactly – it relates back to what we just talked about kind of at the start of the podcast here in uh, that generational thing. Ironically, my as we're recording this, my father's in town right now. So oh, wow. we, uh, we actually watched this episode uh, just the other day because he <laughs> – 
I told him, I, I got to get ready for it. So, hey. Um, but, yeah, he, he didn't mind in the slightest. It's Star Trek. It's time to watch Star Trek with my dad. And I think that's one of the reasons I liked it. There was um, – for me, I, I really enjoyed seeing the two worlds bridge. It's something that I didn't see a lot of um, in the 80s. It was always, you know, very, very – everybody who was in a franchise, there was none of that crossover stuff. You just never saw it. Um, yeah. Like you said, and, and Next Gen had really had kind of pushed on not having um, TOS characters pop up on the on the new series um, outside of DeForest Kelly. And then I, I probably want to say Reunification was probably that really big first kick with Nimoy coming aboard. Um, yeah, and they did have Sarek in the episode Sarek. Ah, that's right. And I forgot about that too. Forgive yeah. me. A lot of Star Trek to recall. So, well, uh, <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, I mean there was those little, those little bits and pieces. But yeah, this was kind of – yeah, you started seeing more. It was really cool to see. And I just thought this was a good one because it was uh, it was just such a beautiful episode because you don't think about um, the next phase of life for these characters. When the story ends, the story ends. Like, yeah. And Star Trek VI is a great example of that. It's you know second start of the right straight on until morn, and it's this beautiful crescendo and the, the, the autographs and, you, and audience applauds and, and we're done. But like, wh- where do we go from there? And Generations kind of touched on it too with you know Kirk's retirement and that, what happens next. And, and a guy like Scotty who, you know, that's, that's all he knows – to see an episode where he is out of place aboard an Enterprise really caught my eye, and it's one that I don't think uh, is celebrated enough in, in, in there. Because I, I also did, you know, uh, look at what you guys have covered. You guys have covered some powerful, powerful episodes, sure. um, which is great. I mean, you guys do a great podcast. Um, so I thought it'd be fun to talk about an episode like that where you get a little bit more depth to a TOS character um, since they really didn't get anything like that until the movies came out. That's yeah, that's fascinating. Uh, you never really do get to see uh, the f- later lives of characters, or no. if you do, it's some sort of uh, alternate reality or time travel oh, episode. Course, yes. Maybe we need some kind of uh, Star Trek on Golden Pond or something like that to kind of see the last act of the lives of some of these characters. Even a story yeah. like Generations, yeah. which I obviously was clearly um, written by Ron Moore and um, oh, yeah. inspired by this episode, uh, shows Picard turning a new leaf over but it's more like a chapter two instead of like the last chapter like he's mm-hmm. realizing that his life that time isn't going to eat him whole if he doesn't let it so he's yeah. getting a new lease on his older life and it's like no no i mean like is it going to go to space boca raton like where do these people go to retire like, exactly how does, yeah how does it work so, yeah I'm, I'm very certain Riker ended up on risa i don't see why he would oh yeah sure um, for sure <laughs> yeah you just definitely get a house there because that man loved the beach there um yeah but i mean but yeah exactly that it's just that's that second phase we don't we never think about it and it's funny even in like um even in games like star trek online like there are you know these characters are acknowledged but it's just kind of like they there's a flame to tell to every Star Trek character that that doesn't explain, you know, how how their life ends, and I think we're going to see more of that as time goes on because you've got well, Picard coming up this fall on CBS All Access, yeah, um, and there's going to be a great example of you know what that second phase looks like, um, mm-hmm. which I cannot wait for that because uh, Next Gen is my personal favorite because of Picard and because it was that grow up piece, but um, but yeah, Relics is just a uh, and even seeing it again. Um, I actually watched it a couple times prior to this podcast just to make sure you know I have my ducks in a row. Uh, it's just a beautiful episode through and through, even though and it's heartbreaking at times too because it's uh, and that's credit to James Duhon and, and his performance because uh, you've never seen you never see a guy that thinks about that thinks about retirement. Just oh my goodness, that whole sequence aboard the uh, the holodeck where he comes to realize that you know maybe he's maybe the time has passed him by is just heartbreaking because I mean you're you're Montgomery Scott. There's that's not is that possible? Is it possible for time to pass up a legend? Yeah, and he doesn't. What struck me is that he doesn't want to look at manuals. Like at one point, Picard's oh, yeah. like, "Oh, we'll just give you some of the documentation." He's like, "I don't want to read any manuals." Oh my God, Scotty doesn't want to read manuals. Yeah, so something's really wrong here. Exactly. Yeah, that's that's kind of that. That which I think is ironic, as I recall it. I might be wrong here, and correct me if I am. But I thought I read down the line that uh, you know, Scott, and Montgomery Scott ended up working on on later classes of ships in Starfleet and got back into the game. I, I could have sworn I read somewhere that he had made work on made had done some work on the Enterprise E and some of her engine systems. So, 
He is definitely in a lot of the uh, books, the pocket books, yeah, for yes, sure, in the 21st century. So, But we're not talking about that. We're talking about the TNG episode Relics, the fourth episode of the sixth season. It first aired on October 12th of 1992. It was written by Ronald D. Moore, who... Let's face it, we've we've talked about him a lot on this show, so I'm going to have to come up with some kind of game for names like Ron Moore or Peter <laughs> Allen Fields or, or Brandon Braga. But uh, suffice, yes. it, suffice it to say for this episode, uh, as a lover of the original series, writing this was a labor of love for him, and he was behind some of the unique aspects of the episode. The episode was directed by Alexander Singer, who directed 22 total episodes of TNG, DS9, and Voyager. He got his start directing in the early 60s on shows like The Rifleman and The Virginian, and he'd go on to direct TV for three decades until retirement retiring in the 90s. Relics was his first directing job for the series, and he said that it was particularly satisfying for him because he is a sci-fi fan, and he actually was directing uh, Mission Impossible episodes for Desilu in the 60s, and it always looked across the lot and wanted to direct a Trek episode, but it never really got the chance to make it happen, so this was a very exciting experience for him. The star date for this episode is 46125.3, and your assignment, John, if you can, is to give us a 25-word synopsis of Relics. Uh, oh, that's a good one. A little challenge to the uh, to the writing part of that. Um, I didn't see. I, I thought I prepared for everything, but this. You're very sneaky like that, but that's okay. Everybody loves a good challenge. A former Starfleet engineer is forced to face the possibility that he is a relic of his own when he is thrust into the future. Excellent. That's very good. Um, there we I can, go. I, yes, I can tell that you are a, a journalist because that's like a succinct uh, <laughs> sort of thesis statement of your thing. Uh, whenever I ask a writer, they want to like set the scene, then give us the characters one by one, and they're up to like two hundred and fifty words. And it's like this is this is very descriptive. But yeah, we just you give you the thank, punch. You can thank screenwriting for that. That's uh, that's one of the yes. What's the elevator pitch? Yeah, exactly. what's my log line? So if I can give you a log line, there she is. <laughs> the turbo lift pitch, as it were. Exactly. Yeah. Oh yes, always. Here's some interesting facts. Facts from our memory banks about the episode, and there's there's quite a few facts about this episode. Uh, it was a challenging undertaking, uh, recreating a lot of the TOS elements for the show. So feel free to jump in uh, with whatever comments you might have. Um, the premise in this episode of a character using a transporter loop to preserve themselves was originally pitched to the show by writer Michael Rupert, uh, and the production didn't buy that related story pitch. But they later realized that it was an intriguing idea and went back and bought the premise from him. Uh, producer Michael Pillar actually came up with the idea of using that premise to reintroduce an original series character and after this episode and the uh, season five two-parter episode featuring spock aired the production officially lifted this ban that it had uh, for referring to the original series up to that point it was actually part of the writer's bible that trek wasn't going to buy any stories about the tos crew or the descendants um, if you look at the tng bible they specifically say don't write a story about kirk we don't want to hear a story about kirk's son we don't huh. want to hear you know that spock is doing something because they really felt like the show wanted to stand on its own and the reversal of this policy led of course to characters like demora sulu uh, you know films like generations um having characters like sulu on voyager all of Enterprise and Discovery, essentially, uh, are all result, you know, the result of them basically saying, well, we've got a whole franchise and universe here. Why don't we use it? As well, they should. It's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's so rich and so vast. And that's funny. I never really thought about that because I guess I shouldn't be surprised considering how many restrictive rules there were in seasons one and two of Star Trek The Next Generation. Um, since I know the no conflict rule was a big, uh, big challenge for oh, a lot of the writers. Oh, yes, for especially, sure. Especially Mr. Moore, for that matter. So I know he had spoken on spoken at length about that, how, how difficult it was to try to find – a good resolution of story without without any conflict to set it up. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And the idea of a shared universe is just, you know, it, it's the cart before the horse in, in the modern sort of uh, franchise building oh, yeah. way. Mm -hmm. Like we want to have that. But it's just so interesting that Roddenberry being in charge of TNG, 
is totally drawing off of, I mean, it's the next generation, but at yeah. the same time wants it to stand alone. And it took people like Ron Moore, uh, guys that grew up as fans of Star Trek, once they took control and they were kind of driving where the series were going, they're like, well, let's bring this back. Let's have this reference and ended up kind of building that shared universe out of whole cloth. And I'm so glad they did because I mean, the way. Oh yeah, absolutely. Wise, I mean, I, I mean, as as a huge person that plays Star Trek online on a regular basis, that that, that fabric is is paramount to it. Um, yeah. And also ironic that Roddenberry wanted to keep it so standalone when the ship was named Enterprise. That's intriguing. Um, yeah. <laughs> and half the scripts, half the scripts were all uh, discarded scripts from like the original series or Phase yeah, Two as that's well. Right. That's right. The child being one of those, which also got a, a name drop in uh, in Relics, um, thanks to Jordy yeah. about souring the milk. So. I learned last year when we did Devil's Due that Devil's Due was a script for the original series as well. And once you know that, I think it makes a lot more sense because Picard yeah. is doing a very Picard thing. He's doing the lawyering thing, you know, when he's uh, arguing against the devil. Yes. But a lot of his lines and a lot of the ways that he approach it are a very Kirkian sort of thing like, hey, your society's wrong. I'm going to ruin it. And then we're going to fly off. And good luck, you guys. Yeah. <laughs> It's true that uh, yeah, Kirk and General Order One were never the uh, never the best of friends, were they? No, um, no, they were estranged. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, the show was originally scheduled to be written by Brandon Braga, but he wanted to write the upcoming episode of Fistful of Datas instead, and he also wasn't as big of a TOS fan as Moore, so Moore got the job. Uh, Freeman Dyson, uh, who is the inventor of the Dyson Sphere, or at least the conceptualizer, he's a real theoretical ph physicist and mathematician who proposed the idea in his 1960 paper, Search for Artificial Stellar Sources of Infrared Radiation. And Dyson Spheres, because they enclose a star completely, would not give off visible light, but would be detectable through infrared radiation. And Dyson himself admitted that such structures were hypothetical and probably unlikely, and kind of, you know, the idea of surrounding a star would probably be implausible and possibly impossible. And he said that he somewhat regrets his name being associated with the idea. He did say that he liked the episode, though. I think his daughter sent him a copy of the episode. And I don't know oh. if he was a Trek, Trek fan, but he said, uh, well, it's just total fantasy, but it was it's entertaining. So, oh. yeah, that so actually, he did, did like not, that. That's a great fact. <laughs> yeah. Uh, maybe we could change the name to a Stapledon Sphere, uh, as Dyson has suggested in the past. Structures very similar to Dyson Spheres appear in Olaf Stapledon's 1937 novel, Star Maker. That novel also features early sci-fi tropes that would appear in Trek, like alternate universes, and a philosophy that's similar to the Prime Directive. Uh, the idea of having a Dyson Sphere in an episode of TNG had been kicked around for a few years before Relics was actually produced, uh, but the writing staff had found that it never seemed to fit in any of the plots that they were working on, and it became something of a running joke in the writer's room, like, throwing, throw a Dyson Sphere in there. Uh -huh. um, Moore eventually included it in the story for Relics, and so writer Naren Shankar fleshed out the concept, and apparently, as I'm sure that you know as a screenwriter, uh, if you're writing something, you don't always know exactly what you need. You don't know the technical details. And in Star Trek scripts, mm -hmm. uh, you don't let that slow you down. So you just sort of write tech the tech, you know, in, in the uh, margins. And yes. so... Yes, the rewrite game is key. <laughs> yeah, right. Naren Shankar went to do the, uh, the necessities as far as the data goes and blew more away when he found out, oh, <laughs> the size of this sphere is so big that the interior would have the surface area of 400 million Earths, which, of course, we see just a tiny fraction of yes. uh, in the episode. And it's a fascinating idea um, of a Dyson sphere. It's one of those things that... It's actually one of those things that, um, you know, things like SETI, people who are looking for um, uh, extraterrestrial life, look for. Like, they look for sources of infrared radiation that don't have a, um, a corresponding um, luminescence to them, thinking that 
if we've had this idea and if physics works the same way in a different part of the galaxy, some other alien that thinks like us is going to think we could do this. But it also to, it just seems to me like it's like that super great idea that is just never actually going to work out. Like the amount of engineering possible to do it. Like yeah. you, would, you would need the energy of a star to do what you're doing, to, to capture the energy of, of a star. Yeah, and not to mention, I mean, how many generations, you know, just would it take to build that sphere? Um, right, yeah. For that kind of mass and that kind of distance, I mean, and that, I think that's what another reason this episode's so cool is because, like, the mystery is there. That's what I like about it the most is there, there, there's so many questions you have at the end. I mean, the central Scotty story is beautiful in its own right, but, yeah, the yeah. Benson sphere is just a huge conversation piece because the, the sheer enormity. I love that we never see a view screen view of the Dyson sphere that doesn't include an endless um, – an endless horizon of this monster. Um, yeah, right, every right. shot has, you know, this, this dwarf little enterprise and this tiny little, a tiny little Janolan just trying to, to, to navigate all that space. Um, yeah, the mystery of it is, is something that's very intriguing about that. I don't know if Star Trek's ever going to answer it. Um, and I kind of hope they don't honestly, cause that's one of those cool, just like, here it is. It's something to explore. This is what it is. Let, let, the, let the science engineers take care of it, and we'll go from there. Yeah. And also it puts our characters in more perspective. Sometimes the characters in Star Trek can seem, especially in TNG, can mm. seem removed because their lives are so different and they aren't violent and venal and, you know, they've evolved mm -hmm. as human yes. beings and they have this amazing technology. But even they are blown away. Like, they can't believe that they found a Dyson sphere. Yeah. You know, this, <laughs> this thing that was uh, theoretical just hundreds of years ago and still to them is, with all their technology, they can't imagine the engineering that would be required to create it. So the one thing that does kind of bug me, though, and I've talked about this on the show previously, is they're always finding this amazing technology or they're talking to intelligent computers mm -hmm. or they're meeting, like, energy beings and, and finding amazing technology and they always mention like once they work out the conflict there'll be a technological exchange between our peoples then we go on to the next episode and we never see any of that technology ever again like i wonder if like the two science ships wow that they sent at the end yeah. of the episode to check out the <laughs> sphere i wonder if like section 31 or, or somebody is just like oh no we didn't find anything and then they're just keeping all the information for yeah. themselves like to, why does this propagate <laughs> yeah right yeah right no, that's a fair point. That's actually a fair point. And that's, and that's I think that's more limits of TV than anything else. Just because, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, I always cite the inner light as a great example of that because that's the kind of thing that would damage a man severely. Uh, oh, yeah. Like, yeah, right. We're not talking shore leave like in family. We're talking this is, you know, probably a year at Starfleet Medical and Psychiatric Institute um, just to talk right. about how you're, you're actually Jean-Luc Picard. Um, yeah. So, yeah, because, I mean, it's the same thing. It's next week like, well, I guess it'll be okay. I got this flute. It was a nice memory. So moving on. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, same thing. You know, here's this here's this technological marvel, and yeah, the engineers got it. We're gonna go do our thing. Uh, see you guys later. So, <laughs> gotta chill out in space, Boca Raton. You know, yep, for a exactly. year. Yep. It's time to toes in the sand. Swing by Risa, get some umbrella drinks, and uh, we'll see you next <laughs> <Right>. week. <so. laughs> yeah. <laughs> I also think it's interesting that this alien race uh, presumably has the uh, technology and engineering to build this thing, yeah. but they can't tell if a G-type star is going to be slightly eccentric, like in its later life. Oh, now we get to the plot holes. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and also um, maybe, I mean, they can't dis disassemble the sphere and put it around another star. Like, yeah. I'm imagining this race that like is above the Federation in terms of technology and they want to make the next leap. And so they've like kind of emptied out. They've broken the piggy bank technologically and in, in terms of resources and they've saved everything and they put it all into this big Dyson sphere and then it doesn't work out and they're kind of screwed. And then they're just race just dies out after that. Yeah. What, what an embarrassing moment that would have been too. When you had to get on whatever version of TV they had in that particular planet and be like, so uh, about our new home. We have to leave. It's not yep. going to work out. We were wrong. 
everybody pack up, we're going. Um, yeah, Ball and that's a bust. Yeah. And you would think, yeah, yeah, is that is, that, is this not a sphere that could be done in segments? So you would think it would. I would, I would sure. assume, just right. looking at how how most things are built. At least maybe it's the arrogant human perspective, but you know, putting together an AMC, you know, Ertl model, you gotta. <laughs> Got to got to glue the sausage section together first before you get to the star drive. So yes, I would think it's the same kind of principle, but maybe not. I mean, it's I guess that's part of that mystery. Um, is it, it also leads to questions that are a bit more of the silly side because yeah, I mean I agree with you. How could you not? I mean, if, if yeah, Federation sensors can figure out there's a problem with that star, which they're usually pretty good at that. Um, how many episodes we've seen of every show where they fly into a system and go, oh yeah, it's nice and all, but the star system showing volatile this and this. How how could you miss that? <laughs> yeah, that's a very good point. Yeah. Now I want to see the AMT Dyson Sphere model. It uh, costs $5,000, and it fills up your backyard. Oh, my God. Yeah, that one or the Lego one, at least. I'm Ten years. Yeah. yeah right Either one. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, speaking of the Sphere, uh, both interior and exterior maquettes or scale models were created for the episode by longtime Trek model maker Greg Jean. Uh, there's actually some great behind-the-scenes photos of the maquettes on Mem- Memory Alpha that are pretty cool. Uh, and also matte paintings were created by er- uh, artist Eric Chauvin to depict the landscape and features of the interior of the sphere. Uh, CGI was considered for the interior of the sphere, but it would, would have been too expensive for that era. Uh, the Sydney class USS Janolin was originally designed by Bill George and John Goodson as the SD-103 type shuttlecraft that's seen in Star Trek VI and in Star Trek Generations. It was redressed by Gene for this episode, and the shuttle and its class are named for the Janolin Caves near Sydney, Australia, which Ron Moore visited while in Australia for a Star Trek convention. The original series transporter sound effect and visual effects were used in this episode for the Janolins transporter. TNG VFX producer Dan Curry once worked at Cinema Research, a company that had worked on VFX for the original series, and he actually recovered a box containing the original film effects film effects used on original series episodes from the company's storeroom. It was a situation of just um, hopefully good uh, cataloging and blowing off the dust and finding some of the original film that was yeah, used really? wow. for those episodes. Yeah, And the sound effect was found by TNG post-production supervisor Wendy Nice in Paramount's archive of sound effects. The holodeck sequence where Scotty visits the bridge of the original Enterprise was initially scripted to feature him interacting with members of the original crew through archival footage. But this was scrapped uh, for budgetary reasons, and let's face it, I mean, it would have been uh, quite a job. The idea would be picked up again, of course, for Ah, the DS9 episode, Trials and Tribulations, which we've talked about previously on this show. Great episode. And that's another one, too, where you see people like Greg Jean, uh, VFX people, you know, Ron Moore, of course, all just indulging in their love mm-hmm. of Star Trek. And then finally, like we talked about this on that episode, like the technology of computer sort of compositing shots had finally caught up to the point where they could do some of the things that they wanted to yes. do in this, oh, yes. this episode, but they could do then. Yeah. And you could even see um, it's very briefly, but the, the green screen is, is very visible in HD um, when it comes to Scotty ordering that bloody simulation to be turned off. Um, so yes, yeah, I, I, I imagine that would have been, uh, that if they had gone through the original plan, I wonder how well that episode would have been received. Um, just because it yeah. probably would have been very weird looking. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. As it is, it turns out uh, pretty well. Um, the, uh, it is green scene. Uh, the line by data is of course a reference to the original series episode by any other name where Scotty is tasked with incapacitating a Kelvin invader via drinking contest. And the last bottle that they open is described by Scotty as, being green. 
Uh, a scene was cut from the episode where Troy visits Scotty in his quarters to counsel him about his experiences. Uh, but Scotty is indignant uh, over being perceived as crazy or unable to adjust to the 24th century. Uh, Troy would also offer in the cut scene to inform Scotty about what his old shipmates were up to in the 24th century. Uh, and that scene was cut, but it does appear in a novel form in Michael Jan Friedman's novelization of the episode. And I believe it's a de- deleted scene on the season six Blu-ray as well. It kind of explains why she kisses him at the very end. Like they're all sort of saying goodbye to him at the end of the oh, episode. Oh yeah, that's right. You, yeah, it's a very, but you're very like, warm Oh goodbye. wow. <laughs> yeah. I guess uh, Marina Sirtis wasn't in this episode. No, she was. They just, they just yeah, cut it out. Just right at the end. That's a shame. And see, that actually, I know running time is always a key. That would have been, yeah, that should have stayed in. That would have been and phenomenal. It's, a, it's a perfect, it's another example of like you were saying with Picard getting over his experiences in inner, inner light. This is why we have a counselor. Like it isn't the sixties yeah. anymore. You don't just go, Let's get the hell out of here and then yep. presumably drink a lot of Saurian brandy and we'll come back next season. Exactly. Uh, Fine. Yeah. <laughs> You've got a counselor to talk to. <laughs> They're there for this reason. Every week somebody's being cloned or brought back from the dead or infected with some alien disease. And so yeah. that's why she's there. And, and maybe that's – and maybe that's. I guess we can fill that as an off screen for inner life. But, uh, but yeah, yeah, that, yeah. Would been, that would have been huge to have her spend time with Scotty. Like that could have been – that could have changed the dynamic of the episode completely. Um yeah, and it's something else that I really liked was the fact that when Scotty comes aboard, the first th- – you know, obviously he is uh, confronted by a Klingon, which we can talk about in a second. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but he is confronted by uh, a um, chief engineer who's black mm-hmm. and yes. a doctor who's a woman who in the world of Star Trek – of course, we know that you know, they have achieved equality, so that's not a big deal. But considering the world of the 60s, which his show was made, like he is encountering characters that he never would have encountered oh, yeah. uh, on 60s uh, Star Trek. And I think a counselor uh, fits that bill exactly, um, too. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. And that's uh, and it's funny because I – a quick side note on that. I, I did recently sure. rewatch a couple episodes of original Star Trek just because they were on. Um, mm-hmm. And the, I hate to say it, but you, know, it's, you can definitely see the product of the times – because they're they're basically poking fun of a woman, and I'm like, yeah, that would uh, that would not fly at all um, <laughs> yeah. in the modern era, and rightfully so. Because I mean, that's not that's what I mean. It wasn't appropriate, but it's interesting to see what was deemed appropriate back in '66, even in a show that was about respect. <laughs> yeah, and Scotty brings a little bit of that with him. It's not enough that the doctor uh, miraculously cures his arm. He's like, oh, she's good looking too. Exactly. Yeah, fair <laughs> sight prettier. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I just, I just wanted like one character to be like, yeah, we don't really do that anymore. Uh, you should probably stop that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, there's a. There's a bit of a discrepancy in continuity presented by Scotty's statement that Jim Kirk got the Enterprise out of mothballs to rescue him. Uh, James Kirk, of course, was presumed dead during the maiden voyage of the Enterprise B, mm-hmm. as seen in Generations, which Scotty was, of course, present for. Uh, StarTrek.com attributes Scotty's confusion to the uh, .003 degradation that his pattern experienced while he was suspended in the transporter. So hopefully that'll work for people's head, head cannon. Yes, and I... It- uh, that works. That works. <laughs> it makes sense. <laughs> this is a, there's a couple references to previous canon. Uh, there are some explicit TOS references in this episode. Uh, Scotty himself specifically refers to the events of Wolf in the Fold, mm-hmm. uh, Elan of Troyes, and the Naked Time as well. And he obliquely refer, refers to uh, events from Star Trek four, five, and six. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is also speaking of canon again. This is one of those episodes where somebody gets beamed through shields, and. I don't really care about that. You know, I mean, those kind of technical details are not what's really all, you know, important to me in Star Trek. But if you need some headcanon, I have uh, a suggestion or two. Um, you could say we've established that 
shields operate at certain frequencies. Uh, they are closely guarded, you know, f- uh, secrets, military secrets. And so perhaps the two ships could exchange shield frequencies to allow them to beam through ray shields. I know that Larry Nemchek's Star Trek TNG companion suggests that Scotty has put all the shield power into the fore and aft shield arcs in order to hold the yeah. sphere doors open. That makes sense. And so that way they could be beamed through the uh, star starboard hull. You know, I, I, I think uh, I, I think that that you're right about that. I agree with you. There's a lot. There's been a lot of of chatter over the years about, oh, well, the shields are up. They couldn't have done that. But we forget that shields can be compromised. Um, yeah, yeah. And and we've seen, you know, as it gets more advanced, especially in like Nemesis, for example, when they when uh, Shinzon drops the, uh, the the dorsal shields um, and the vent- well, everything because he takes all of Enterprise's shields down at some point. But even then, yeah, the fact that they want to roll so they can they don't have that area compromised, um, it makes sense to me. That's what I, that was honestly what I thought rewatching it. It didn't come up to me as like, oh, well, that that's not possible. That old of a ship and that much of a technology beatdown. I don't see why you wouldn't have Ooh, a hole. There you go. You sure. Um, yeah. Because that thing was just, a, I mean, the, the genome was a mess. I mean, the fact that it made it where it made it for as long as it did is a miracle worker moment in its own right. Yeah. There's a moment in uh, the episode, The Wounded, where O'Brien has to sort of beam on to, um, I can't remember the name of the uh, ship, but it's a captain who's kind of gone rogue and he's oh, destroying Cardassian yes. mm-hmm. uh, ships. Uh, and he can, he basically says like, you know, since I'm an engineer, I know where the shield generators are and where the arcs sort of develop. So I could, you know, shoot a tight beam like in between those to get on board, which is fine. You know, they only do it once and he's a very good engineer. But it's basically they wrote themselves into a situation where we've got to we love this scene where he's the hostage negotiator talking the guy down. Yeah. You know, oh, yeah. The only way to do that is to have them be together. So, yes, yeah. that's fine. Whatever. Yeah. I mean, it's, I think there's a lot you know, way more way more goes into that than it should for that. And, and too much too much worry and concern about, well. The plot could ever work because of the shields. Like you know, it's okay. <laughs> yeah, it, it, I'm always reminded. <laughs> I'm always reminded of the uh, Emerson quote uh, that a foolish consistency is the hobgoblin of little minds. When I think of people who uh, are so you know are canon cops and are it's so important to them, like uh, consistency is totally important, especially in a, in a fake universe. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, lighten up a little bit. Although that doesn't help me understand how shields work exactly in terms of energy and matter yeah like, i know they're supposed to block things but i guess a, a shield is like a really a force field then like mm-hmm. it can really like physically hold things away so my question is then how do how do thrusters work if you have your shields up because if you ah, you know expel you. like thrusters or <laughs> impulse engine and yet you're enclosed in a bubble that uh, hold would hold all inertia in like how does that even work yeah that's so i got gotcha. you i got gotcha, your show good. that's good that's real good and you know it's funny like that's one of the few technologies that we don't really have a lot of details on like we at this point you could pretty much teach a class on matter antimatter warp drives yeah, um, right. Because, <laughs> yeah. because of how much details come out of that over the years, um, in every single show yeah. and every, every single encyclopedia. But I, I can't think of a good read on. Here's how a deflector shield works. Um, yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah. So that's a uh, that's that's something. Uh, Something that maybe Discovery will handle it, then somebody's got to do it. <laughs> I'm trying to remember my old TNG technical manual, and oh, I think that okay. there's a suggestion that there is a um, – it isn't exactly um, like a warp bubble, but it, there is an application uh, or a side application of that technology that sort of deflects in space-time things that are coming in. So it's actually sort of redirecting phaser beams. Oh, okay. Uh, but yeah, then we see that. phaser beams just be absorbed by shields as well. So I yeah, don't know, who that's knows? that's true. 
That's very this true. is one of those. It's permeable. It's a show, just that's relax. It. It's permeable. Let's it's, go with that. It's, yeah, it's permeable. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Better out than in. That's it. Yeah, we don't want it in. Keep yep, it out. Exactly. Uh, this episode was voted the fifth best episode of TNG for the Star Trek The Next Generation Viewer's Choice Marathon, which was a broadcast uh, hosted by Jonathan Frakes in May of 1994. Uh, just for fun, the other episodes, uh, which apparently they say that they were um, released um, in no particular order, but they were aired in this order. It was Relics, The Inner Light, Yesterday's Enterprise, and then The Best of Both Worlds, Parts 1 and 2. Mm. That's a hard list to disagree with. Yeah, that's a pretty strong list mm-hmm. for sure. Uh, let's talk about the guest stars for the episode. Uh, Lene Chapman appears as Ensign Sariel Rega. She appeared four times on the series as Rega. She got her start in commercials at 13, and she is still acting in TV and film today. Her character's name is spelled R-A-G-E-R, and going back to Ron Moore's Australia trip, apparently his funky dancing caused, to be, caused him to be labeled as a rager, an uh, Aussie slang for a party animal, and he created Ensign Rega to commemorate that. Trying to imagine Ron Moore dancing. Um, yeah, that does not. That's that's a heck of an image, uh, to say the least. Love Ron either Moore. Adult, yeah, <laughs> either adult, yeah, <laughs> either adult version, or if you see pictures of him uh, as a younger man, as one of the uh, TNG writers. Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, and, and just hearing him speak. I mean, uh, Battlestar is another huge. I, love, I, I watched Battlestar because of him, actually, because of how good uh, he yeah. is as a writer. And yeah. hearing him speak on his, his podcast about Battlestar, none of that would come off as a guy that the. I like to throw down like that. So <laughs> he impressed the Australians. So he's yeah, got that going for him. He really him. did. <laughs> uh, Eric Weiss appears as Ensign Kane. This is the kid who is just not interested in Scotty's stories at, at all. all. Uh, Weiss appeared twice as Kane. He was also in the episode Conundrum. He also played the role of Stephen in the second season DS9 episode Paradise. He was an actor in TV and film in the 90s, and his first role was in the movie Mannequin 2 on the Move. I actually own that movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah I do too. <laughs> Uh, well, you know. In the novelization by Friedman, he has a whole subplot going where he is um, basically like his dad was a academy a friend of Picard, so having him you know as an ensign in command on the ship is kind of a favor. But the kid is like not doing a great job, and they have to kind of convince him to sort of take his duties seriously. Hmm. Doesn't fit into this episode, but you know fleshed out for a novel. It's uh, you know, actually, well, yeah, it, well, it kind of does because that, that whole I, I really got to get back to duty. If you if you put a little gravity <laughs> on that, like I'm going to be late. That helps a little bit, and it's yeah. less of a jerk to Scotty. Because I mean, let's be honest: why, why you got to be a jerk to Scotty? It's Scotty. Or <laughs> yeah, <laughs> or he's yeah. And plus, he's still a captain. I mean, he outranks you. Yeah, but oh, yeah. he's probably just headed right for the holodeck after this. Probably yes. Mm-hmm. I'm late for my uh, Parisian yeah. squares game. Quote unquote late, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that's it for the guest stars uh, in this episode. No, no, wait. Uh, let's see. There's one more here. Uh, James uh, Dewan. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's uh, yes. the guy. Character actor. <laughs> yeah, character actor. Uh, nine <laughs> figures. Uh, this episode features the return of Montgomery Scott to Trek TV. Scotty first appeared in Where No Man Has Gone Before, the second pilot of Star Trek, the original series, and he made his last appearance in Trek in Star Trek Generations. And he has an amazing story. Uh, he mm-hmm. was born in Vancouver in 1920. Uh, he enlisted in the uh, Royal Canadian Artillery after the outbreak of World War II. In just a few short years, he worked his way up from the enlisted man to captain, uh, commanding 120 men during the invasion of Juneau Beach on D-Day. Uh, on the evening of D-Day, D-Night, I guess, uh, he was struck yes. by machine gun fire in the chest, leg, and right hand. This, of course, is where he lost the middle finger that he'd spent his TV and film career concealing. When he returned to duty, he became a pilot with the Royal Air Force and flew air taxi flights until the end of the war. And after that, um, 
I've I actually have not read his uh, uh, biography, Beam Me Up, Scotty, although I really want to. But I do know a little bit about his story. Uh, he moved back to Canada and he was uh, getting training on sort of the um, Canadian GI Bill. Basically, he was studying um, math and science and thinking about actually going into science or engineering himself. Wow. And he <laughs> that's <laughs> cool. That's cool. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, he was a real smart guy. Yeah. Uh, he <laughs> was listening to the radio, like to a radio drama. And as a guy who had been interested in acting in like a junior high and high school, he was like, this acting's terrible. Like I could do better than this and went down to the local radio station and I guess recorded like a reel or a couple things and then used those to get a, uh, a scholarship to an acting academy in New York. And it just sort of all took off after that. Like he got uh, radio and TV work in New York and eventually moved to Hollywood for TV, was on some shows like, um, uh, the Virginian and Twilight Zone, you know, early in his career, uh, and then got Star Trek, and then things went from there. Uh, when reading for the part of Scotty, who was then unnamed, uh, he tried out several different accents. I've heard up to eight accents for the role. Uh, Roddenberry wanted the crew to be multicultural, and Duane had developed an impressive array of accents thanks to his work in radio dramas. And in fact, he's responsible for the first words developed for the Klingon language now used widely in Trek. Ah, yeah. uh, the story goes that uh, during the development and filming of Star Trek The Motion Picture, they had brought in a dialectician to develop uh, Klingon, and Roddenberry just didn't really like what the guy was coming up with. So Duan volunteered to uh, to work with producer John Povill to develop the initial sounds, uh, which I think he said were based on Mongolian. Uh, hmm. The Mongolian language. And, of course, uh, those were just a few lines from Mark Lennard to say, you know, in the beginning of TNP, uh, TMP. But uh, later on, it was expanded into a full vocabulary by uh, linguist Mark Ockrand. Hmm. And uh, after um, the original series, uh, Duan would go on to provide um, uh, voiceover work for the animated series as well. Uh, pretty much every male alien that shows up in the animated series is probably voiced <laughs> by Duan. It's one of those, um, awesome. I'm sure you've run into this in old cartoons, but uh, it's probably a money-saving thing. Oh, uh, guaranteed. Like the old, yes. The old Super Friends show, there's one female uh, main character, Wonder Woman, and so every female villain that shows up is almost definitely just the voice actress of Wonder Woman, like, you know, with a stuffed nose or something like that. That didn't shock me at all. <laughs> yeah. So Duan would do that a lot and do it well on the animated series. And, uh, you know, it's funny because all of this almost never happened as Roddenberry wanted to cut the character of Scotty after the second pilot was shot. But apparently Duan's agent found out about it and was pretty angry and convinced Roddenberry to keep the character. Uh, thank heavens he did. Yeah, no kidding. I, I wonder about – I mean you can never really know uh, – we, we can with hindsight, but while you're making it, you don't really know what's going to be a thing and, and what's not. That is true. That and is having – if it's, if it's Hornblower in space – um, and I'm not super familiar with uh, Horatio Hornblower, but does he have like a Scotty? Does he have a below decks guy who's always yeah. telling him, you know, that we need more powder for the cannons? Or <laughs> I'm in the same boat as you. Is that I know the name, and it'd be like what Lily did in Star Trek: First Contact. Like I actually never yeah. read it, but so I know of it. Um, but yeah, exactly. I could see what you mean. I think. Uh, yeah, I, I, I was about to say something about it. like, you know what, John, you're not qualified to talk about it, so just shut your mouth. Um, <laughs> oh, go ahead. <laughs> I just, I, I, as I understood, Horatio Hornblower is a very, you know. A very regal and noble crew, yeah. if you will. So that that and, which was exuded by Kirk. There's always, I mean, for all his his oh, certain ways, there's definitely a nobility about that bridge. Um, yeah, and, yeah. I don't recall in the slightest ever hearing about a uh, an awesome engineer. So, <laughs> well, yeah, but but also as a um, as an officer and sort of a regal character, and probably being kind of high born in the sort of English um, society, he's definitely you're going to have that sort of. Um, 
high, upper decks, lower decks, you know, characters. Yeah, You're going to have true. characters who are enlisted men. Yeah. And so I can see them saying, well, all we need is Kirk, but maybe we need a character like Scotty for him to bounce off of. Yeah. And we got the dynamic that, that we have. Mm-hmm. Um, after Trek, he appeared in a few TV spots and films, um, but not much until, of course, his appearance in Star Trek The Motion Picture in 1979. And that was it. He was pretty much Scotty for the rest of his career then, going through seven TOS films. And he made a handful of parody appearances as a Scotty-like character. Uh, he appeared in National Lampoon's Loaded Weapon 1 <laughs> as a Scotty-like <laughs> character. Uh, he did not, however, appear in the Futurama episode where no fan has gone before, uh, as the rest of the original series cast did, because his agent apparently flatly refused the offer from Fox. Um, no word on whether that's the same agent that kept him on the original series. I was just going to say, did he do him a favor then and do him a non-solid? Or... Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's a great episode. <laughs> yeah, I know. Uh, so, yeah, I don't know. But, they, of course, we got Welshy out of that. So True. True, <laughs> we did. <laughs> <laughs> so, he retired from public life in t- uh, 2004, uh, disclosing that he'd been diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease. Uh, he was actually suffering from diabetes and Parkinson's as well, and he passed away in July of 2005. His last wishes were to have his ashes shot into space, which eventually did happen in 2012 on a SpaceX Falcon 9 rocket. And in 2007, Linlithgow, Scotland claimed themselves as the future birthplace of Montgomery Scott and erected a plaque to honor Dune and the character. Kind of like how Riverside, Iowa is the uh, hometown of James Kirk. Yeah. That's amazing. He better get a parade every year. That's all there is to it. Yeah, right. Uh, (laughs) With pipers and everything. Absolutely. Tattoo, and the finest but, uh, scotch you can drink. Yes. yes. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's always interesting to see how people deal with become very becoming very famous or uh, connected with something long lasting like Trek. Um, you know, Shatner, of course, has inflated to this larger than life figure. Yes. George Decay has become a strong advocate for some important causes. Mm-hmm. Nimoy, Nimoy, kind of became more enigmatic like i don't know how spockish he was before trek but he certainly steered into it in his later life yeah and i think that um d kelly's probably the exception to the rule because d kelly was always a simple southern gentleman and he didn't let that change him he remained one Not slice, yeah. but, that's amazing I yeah ever, i mean I, I know i'm sure he understood what he was a part of but you're right that was yeah uh, speaking of level head that he was just like okay that's cool next yeah <laughs> yeah for sure yeah uh, and he was an animal lover, too. You know, he um, had animal refuges, and, yeah, he was just a really great guy. Mm-hmm. But we're talking about uh, Jimmy Dewan, yes, who sorry. also seemed like a I really nice guy. I get up sorry. <laughs> That's a, it's all Star Trek. <laughs> he was an interesting figure because he was clearly cut out for acting and representing Trek in his later years. I, I get the impression that he would have been a success no matter what he chose to pursue. You know, he yeah. his meteoric rise in the Army, um, studying science and engineering, and then also just deciding – well, wait, I'm going to do this instead. And then just heading down to New York. And huh? he just, he seems like this really like this, actually uh, the scholarship that he got was for the neighborhood playhouse uh, in New York, which was kind oh. of a big deal. Hmm. And uh, he that. was classmates with uh, Tony Randall and Leslie Nielsen, like oh, when they goodness. were there as, as well. Yeah. Wow. <clears throat> so he seems like this resolute guy who like makes up his mind about something and he does it. And he could be kind of obstinate, uh, which is only natural. Um, that's what comes with being resolute. When, when TNG first came on the air, he apparently refused to watch it because he thought it was just a retread of the original series. And as we've discussed, uh, to be fair, he had, he had a bit of a point. Uh, yeah, that first season. The yeah. First, yeah, first season did feature a lot of TOS-ish elements. In fact, uh, but it, ironic they let him speak to the naked time in his episode when there was the naked time in the first season as well. Yeah, so. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. 
Um, and those references all, of course, there's one from the first, second, and third season mm-hmm. of Star Trek, so they're sort of covering it all. But apparently his family made him sit down and watch some of the later seasons, and he realized that you know TNG was striking out on its own and, and doing something different. That it did. It really did. And he spent many years interacting with fans at conventions, appearing in uh, fan films and, and documentaries, and many fans were inspired by him uh, to choose engineering as a profession. Uh, apparently, Neil Armstrong uh, met James Duhon uh, in his last public appearance uh, in 2004 hmm. and said, uh, from one old engineer to another, you know, thank you. <laughs> wow. See that? I don't know. That's amazing. And I think everybody knows the story about how uh, a young fan um, had uh, contacted him and said that she was uh, contemplating suicide. Yes, that was a beautiful story. And, yeah, and he told her to come down to the next um, convention that he was doing that was near her and talked with her and gave her encouragement. And she actually went back to school and became a le- an electronics engineer. Mm. So it's just amazing. Like, you don't think these dumb shows you know, with the aliens and things <laughs> in them, like, you don't think that they can have this kind of effect on people. But of course they can. They do. They do. Pop culture is, is, is incredibly powerful. It really is. And, and, and yeah, I mean, it, it's, 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 the, it's the material that matters more than the substance. Because, I mean, let's be honest. We've all seen the picture of uh, Sulu carrying the, uh, the alien dog. Um, one of the <laughs> yes. lovely fursuit with this little a little party hat looks like a, a horn on his head. Um, yes. But we don't. But uh, well, that's you know funny in its own right. It doesn't matter. It's what Star Trek had to say. It's what it meant. It was about you know um, the unity and, and the teamwork and, and guys like Scotty. You know that that in many ways I've always seen him as like the everyman on Star Trek. He's kind of like the everyday guy that you could absolutely go have a beer with and absolutely have a drink with. But was you yeah. know, wise beyond his years. But also somebody that really believed. And what the Federation stood for and really believed in, the, in, the, in that better way. Um, and that's the stuff that really inspires you. And, and that's why that's it's why I love this show. It's just, yeah, it's all that. Yeah. And for those reasons, it, it, he's an interesting character to pair up with Jordy. Oh, um, yeah. Ron, Ron Moore said that in writing the episode, he wanted to make a clear distinction between the two characters in that, that they're both very good at what they do. But Jordy is somebody who is just doing a job. He's just serving a role. Like he doesn't expect to be chief engineer forever. But Scotty is the job like engineering and tinkering is his life. And he's just always going to do that. Yeah. That's, that's brilliant. <laughs> that's the way to put it. Yeah. And other than that, I, I'm not really sure um, how to sort of characterize them. Like I want, I know that they uh, in the novels um, go forward and are friends. Um, all we get to see in <laughs> this episode <clears throat> is them kind of bickering and Jordy being pretty dismissive of him, um, which doesn't reflect well on Jordy, but you know, he's, he's, yeah, he's a young yeah. ch- chief engineer. <laughs> and if you think about uh, somebody walking into Scotty's engineering uh, on the old enterprise, I suppose that he probably would have acted similarly. But the fact that, you know, <laughs> as is made clear in the episode, Scotty probably invented half of this stuff, Jordy. Like, why don't you just calm down? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> maybe, maybe he can tell you something about this stuff. I love the advice that he gives him about, uh, yeah, you can, you know, inflate those uh, estimates a little bit. Yeah. Otherwise, people aren't going to think that you're you can pull off miracles. Yeah, and I've always I always saw it as, as I think I think it it's just the interesting divide of the times because, in many ways, you know, at that point, you know, when you look at Kirk and I've always seen it compared to that too, even on the show. You know, that it was that um, it was the wild, wild west, you know, uh, especially that Janeway mentions that, you know, that it was that it was that time when you just, you know, you could get away with a little more, um, you know, whereas right. by 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 the by the 24th century, Starfleet's a well-oiled machine and they, they've been exploring and there's a lot of there's a sense of, of duty to what you do more than anything else. And I've always seen Jordy as that, that that was the interaction that I, I agree with. I mean, he, he probably could have been, you know, tone it down from an 11. Um, for sure, with I was talking to Scotty, but for him it was the duty and the ship and his crew, and not that Scotty didn't do that, but yeah, it's exactly it's just that 
how it was presented. It was more of that interpersonal piece. Kirk kept it really loose on the Enterprise. It was very much about, you know, your friends. Um, and even though they're friends in the next right. generation, Picard is about that duty. Yeah. It takes him the whole series to, to sit down yeah. with them and play exactly. poker yeah. as friends. Yeah. <laughs> To, to break that barrier. Yeah, and of course, uh, that gets carried on into Generations, of oh, course, yeah. also by Ron Moore, where we see uh, the way that Kirk handles things and the way Picard sort of looks at mm-hmm. things. And we get that in this episode, too. With I love that line about they're trying to fix the Janolin, and he's like, oh, just plug it into that thing. And, yeah. <laughs> and Jordy's like, uh, that's not going to work, and there's a rule about that. And Scotty's like, yeah, I wrote the rule. Exactly. Don't worry You're about good. it. You're <laughs> good. And there's a great example, yeah, about just the invention portion of it. How many regulations does Jordy follow to a T that, that Montgomery Scott wrote? Right, right. They just told me to write something says, oh, just 30%. Yeah, That's exactly. it, I It'll guess. be fine. Yeah. You can crank it to 50, nobody's <laughs> going to notice, but stay at 30. It's cool. <laughs> no one's going to test this. Yeah. Uh, well, that idea to have the original bridge appear in Relics was the brainchild of Ron Moore. And um, in the fifth season episode, Cause and Effect, we see uh, Kelsey Grammer as Captain uh, yes. Frazier <laughs> uh, on a TOS movie era ship. And we just see a little bit of the bridge, like on the view screen. Um, they wanted to build an entire bridge for that episode, uh, for, like of the movie. Um, variety but that was next of course for budget reasons as well um, and so Moore was adamant though about getting this in the episode even though it was initially refused and producer Michael Piller who again is one of the faces on uh, Mount Star Trek mm-hmm. uh, yes. he's uh, definitely influential uh, he actually suggested renting a fan built replica uh, or a set. So ultimately, uh, production designer Richard James came up with the idea of building a wedge-shaped portion of the TOS bridge that would be centered around Scotty's engineering console and just matting in the rest of the set using archival footage. And VFX producer Dan Curry, who, once again, was also a TOS fan, he remembered that the episode This Side of Paradise featured a scene with an empty bridge. And I believe that the lights were darkened in that scene, but they color corrected it and used that for the effect. Yeah. And then the other shot that we see of the view screen uh, with not, nobody sitting at the con um, comes from the TOS episode, The Mark of Gideon. So they just kind of plugged all those in. Yeah. Uh, the captain's chair and the helm console were actually fan built by prop maker Steve Horch, which he built for a touring ex- uh, exhibition. And some of his other creations have been rented for Trek shows, including the uh, Enterprise episode In a Mirror Darkly. Ah. That features the Bridge of the USS yes. Defiant. Right. That's awesome. Yeah. Okay. Huh. So, yeah, uh, wow. James Colley uh, should keep his uh, <laughs> his set uh, looking pretty good because who knows? They might want to do something else with that. I hope so. Um, it seems like you get the hint with Discovery that, that – they're going to refit the Enterprise somewhere in this in this particular year um, and probably make it look like that. I hope we get a shot of that. And if they use Collie's Bridge, that would be phenomenal because that's a – man, that's a good bridge. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's for sure. Yeah. As we mentioned before, this is a special episode not just because of Scotty and the TOS elements but because it represents a point where the studio finally started to embrace the legacy of the original series and Trek being part of a, of a brand that they were trying to establish. And at this point, many of the production staff who were TOS fans – or had even worked on TOS, were able to, um, they put it, like, come out of the closet as fans, and they didn't have to uh, harsh their uh, squee anymore. (laughs) (laughs) And many of them put in uh, a lot of extra time and a lot of extra hours to make sure that the episode uh, turned out out well. Uh, Yeah, Yeah, it it turned out great. It really did. Yeah, yeah. And somebody who is almost – he's there so much that I don't think he necessarily gets uh, mentioned enough. But, of course, Michael Okuda as uh, oh. the art designer 
uh, did great work in this episode, not only doing the um, the movie uh, L cars, you know, bridge uh, displays for the gentleman, but also working on the TOS side and just making everything look seamless. Yeah. I mean, Makuta is a Star Trek legend. There's no two ways about it. What that man has yeah. done with displays and, and envisioning the future. Uh, yeah, it's too cool. During the production of the episode, um, <clears throat> the set became a destination of sorts for many former Trek stars to visit during filming. Uh, Bob Justman, the associate producer of the original show and supervising producer for TNG, came to see the set, uh, as did Manuel Barrett and Walter Koenig. And it was a nostalgic moment for everyone. And <laughs> always the line producer, though, uh, Justman remarked that the color of the carpet on the bridge set didn't quite match the original. Uh, but with the proper lighting, it, it looked OK on screen. That's <laughs> that's actually amazing. I did not know that. <laughs> yes. That's a phenomenal little tidbit. That's how you get to be. Uh, yeah. That, that the line producer. Yeah, exactly. Uh, everything has to be exactly right. Well, uh, as we get near the end of the episode here, was there anything that you uh, wanted to say about the episode that we haven't reached yet? No, I think that's it just really is that that beautiful nostalgia piece. And it's a it's it it speaks to uh, I hope I hope Discovery embraces more of it just because I know it's been a big chief complaint for a lot of a lot of the baseline fans. Um, And maybe they look like this to kind of embrace that because it it isn't necessarily that it has to be, at least to me, a a flawless recreation of the Enterprise. I just need you to to find the spirit of things. And that was uh, seeing those two engineers, the two generations across like that working together. um, That's the spirit of Star Trek. It's that unity, that teamwork. It's really neat. It makes me kind of – I don't even know how they do this, but it makes me kind of want a Discovery episode where they do TNG sort of something. Oh, that'd be cool, wouldn't it? Like yeah. if they are – yeah, if they're sort of propelled into the future. Or I suppose they could do a past thing, um, seeing them interact with um, like Enterprise-era ship or something like that would be kind of neat Yeah, too. Yeah, and actually at this point, I think the only thing you're seeing continuation for that is really through, ironically, Star Trek Online. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to harp on that game a lot because I don't – <laughs> uh, You're talking about it a lot, like, yeah. it's, it's, It doesn't get enough credit for what it does. I mean, it, they, uh, they feature a lot of the original cast members as best they can. Um, Chris Duhon, who plays who – plays, uh, on Star Trek, the uh, Abrams universe, uh, the Kelvin timeline, uh, plays his dad. Does an impression of him there, and you know you see yeah. you see a lot of that stuff going there for that reason, just to just to throw in the nostalgia. So there is one thing that I wanted to talk about that we didn't hit yet, which is how is Scotty going to survive in a universe of Synthahol? Um, <laughs> like how how does Synthahol work exactly? I don't think we've ever talked about. No, this they on never the show. have. Uh, and, and actually, it's funny. I, I had been, I had mentioned this to a friend. Uh, we had been talking about. Star Trek, and she had mentioned, you know, that, that, that you know, well, if they could replicate beer, then beer is plentiful. I'm like, well, it de- depends because um, what are we talking you get, about? Well, yeah, yeah. You can probably get a course in the 24th century, but it's going to be synthetic alcohol, um, which, which, you know, stopped the conversation dead in its tracks because the reality of that is kind of weird for us, you know, uh, us 20th, first century folks. Um, right. And yeah, I don't know how it works. I, I would love for them to explore that at some point. I would assume, I'm going to hope that there is a, that, that, Regular alcohol is like the craft breweries of the 24th and 25th centuries. Okay, um, yeah. And that Scotty can, you know, just go from place to place, you know, doing beer tours and, and doing scotch tours on other planets. Because, yeah. I don't know, man, Sit the hall. It sounds weird. <laughs> it sounds weird. <laughs> yeah, that would make uh, scotch even more rare then. Because oh, man, it, yeah. if you find, uh, like... Crusher has like family on uh, planet Scotland or whatever, right? In Sub Rosa. I think so, yeah. So if it's a planet that has uh, peats and moors uh, like uh, like Scotland does, can you if you produce whiskey there that is simple, uh, similar, or comparable to Earth whiskey, like is that accepted as Scotch whiskey, or can it only come from Speyside or the Highlands of, of Scotland? Yeah, good call. Good call. I don't know. Yeah. yeah. Um. 
Yeah, I just uh, – just the idea of synthahol is, is just so crazy. It is, isn't it? Uh, and we know And we know that you can't use a still on the Enterprise because they tried that in TNG uh, oh, mm-hmm. in the uh, episode with the uh, the Space Irish people, and that doesn't work no, out either. No, not at all. So that, that would... I like your theory about the craft brewery <laughs> That's my hope. Thing, that's my hope I think... is that there's just a planet where, you know, that's all it is is alcohols like that because clearly uh, – I mean, don't get me wrong. It's, it's weird because it seems so far off for us, but it would probably solve a lot of problems that we had synthahol now. Um There'd probably be a lot of good things that come out of that in that respect, um, yeah. but also a lot of bad things because, you know, uh, scotch is delicious. There's no two ways about it. So I, I understand yeah. his horror. <laughs> I'd hate to think of our intrepid heroes just drinking Franzia for the rest of uh, their time out there in space. Yeah, exactly. They don't, they don't, that doesn't need to happen. Um, that's, that's a terrifying thought, actually. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's talk. Uh, my space dad can beat up your space dad. Who's your favorite captain and why? Picard. Picard. Yeah, he was. Uh, don't get me wrong. I love Kirk growing up, um, and he was cool too. But uh-huh. Picard was my captain because again, I was. This was it. This was the Star Trek. That was that was catered for me. It was the next generation. You know, that's that's how it's done. Yeah. Um, and I love Picard too because he's just he's that he's that voice inside all of us that we want to hear more often because he's so on the level and so keel. And when you're having a yeah. bad day and you just want to go off on somebody that cuts you off on the road, you got to channel the card and think about that, that higher, that higher thought process. <laughs> that's, that's good advice. <laughs> so that's, that's my love of him. That's why, because he really is that, that, that good, um, you know, focused voice that reminds you that, you know what, you gotta, you gotta take a minute, just think about what you're doing and think about where you're going and look at the big picture first. Um, yeah, sure. Not that, you know, Kirk's method isn't, isn't bad at all because don't get me wrong. Sometimes, uh, thrusters on full and go where you need to go is great, but that's uh, that's why Picard is my hero. Well, now that we've reached the end of the show, you'll receive a commission and the rank of ensign. Ooh. What department on the ship do you work oh, in? Oh, command, please. <laughs> command. Interesting. Now, as we see in this episode, uh, command doesn't mean, of course, that you're you know immediately starting out uh, ordering people around. You know, there oh, are no, no. Um, diplomatic uh, and administrative duties that you do. So, uh, what's what's your sort of entry into the command program? Um. Ooh, that's a tough one because uh, that's a hard one to think about. I would say I would hope that I could do diplomatic functions because that that is always a part of Star Trek that's intrigued me. And also hope that at some point I can get my hands on Delta Shift because then at the very least I'm in the chair, even though it's the middle of the night and nothing's happening. Ah, sure. I'll take that. That's fine. <laughs> yeah. I'd have to imagine there are a lot of fresh young ensigns who are all uh, clamoring for the chance to get, uh, you know, to get there at 3 a.m., you know, yeah. and, and, oh, I get to be in the chair. No, me, me. Exactly, yeah. I'm sure they, I'm sure they, if there's straws and fights and that kind of thing. But to do it on Enterprise, oh, that would be, uh, that would be an incredible honor. Yeah, it just makes <laughs> Wesley that much more hateable. Um, yeah, probably. Exactly, yeah. I'm sure he's a... Uh... Nepotism. Yeah. Exactly. It's not fair. It's not fair. I earned it. I wouldn't yeah, exactly. for a month. Come on, let me sit in the chair. <laughs> right. <laughs> Well, Edson Betancourt, thanks for joining me to talk about Star Trek and the Star Trek universe. If people want to continue the conversation, and they can, at at EISTpod on Twitter and the Enterprising Individuals Facebook page, where can people find you online? Um, you can find me at several places. I am at John E. Betancourt. The last name is spelled B-E-T-A-N-C-O-U-R-T on Twitter. Um, and you'll also find me, of course, at Nerds That Geek on every platform across the board. That's where I spend most of my time uh, is, 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 is blogging through birds, Nerds That Geek and then uh, – uh, retweeting out stuff on my own account. If I have something to say on there, I it's rare. I'm not going to lie. Uh, but yeah, that's where sure. you can find okay. me. That's for sure. I would mean, uh, love to talk more about Star Trek. In fact, actually, I think uh, this might be the year for Nerds at Geek to really dive into it and, and look at a lot of older episodes. I feel like uh, I don't talk about it enough, quite frankly. <laughs> that's for sure. I'd love to see that happen. Yeah. yeah. I'm playing with. Where can people find you on Star Trek Online? Um, actually, that one you'll find, if you're uh, since I love to do some uh, hybrid stuff, if you happen to see a ship called the USS Galactica, the uh, NCC-1775-B, floating through the stars, that is me uh, under the handle Bizzle 17 Say hello. 
Well, thanks again for joining me. Oh, thank you so much. I appreciate it. Really been an honor being on this show. That's for sure. We are signing off until the next mission. Hailing frequencies closed. It's on your mind.